大家晚上好，这里是正在为您直播。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining us for another podcast here at Merix. I'm Ruth Kirchner. With me today is Daniel Lese of Freiburg University in southern Germany, and we are discussing the legacy of the Cultural Revolution: ten years of intense political campaigns, upheaval, and chaos. And we are discussing possible parallels with China today under Xi Jinping. Daniel Lese, officially, China is not commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Cultural Revolution. Are there any public discussions in China these days about those events? Public discussions cannot take place in party media, for sure. Although on, in social media there are all kinds of events that have been discussed under the question of whether they relate to the Cultural Revolution or not. Most importantly, the evening concert in the Great Hall of the People on 2nd May, which received tremendous interest among Chinese netizens. It received tremendous interest, and、uh, but there was also a lot of criticism, wasn't there? Definitely. So, especially a couple of daughters or sons of former high-ranking leaders specifically criticized the positive image of the Cultural Revolution. That 50 years after the Cultural Revolution, this kind of event could be staged, and by now the party has retreated from this kind of staging. And why is it that、uh, discussing the Cultural Revolution is still so sensitive in China? Well, the Cultural Revolution was settled with a resolution on party history in 1981, which basically. Tried to shift the blame on a few intriguers, which sort of were dealt with through means of criminal justice. While on the other hand, Mao in the re resolution was only credited with mistakes, not with having engaged in criminal activities. So, if we look at the general population, most of the people somehow could be dealt with as victims. So, we have the problem: who was actually the perpetrator during the Cultural Revolution? And if one would open up this kind of Pandora's box, all kinds of old conflicts, of course, could. Reemerge, and also we would learn more about who actually killed the others during the Cultural Revolution, and it was not only the Red Guards. Are there worries then that、uh, opening that Pandora box, as you put it,、uh, would undermine the authority of the party? Definitely, by way of reopening those old cases, one would learn a lot more about the involvement of the state, the cruelties, sort of. Uh, that have been committed through militias, through the army, through all kinds of party officials, and this is something that would definitely destabilize、uh, the party dictatorship. But on the other hand, it would also open all kinds of factional conflicts between different red guards or rebel organizations, which haven't been settled so far. So the re resolution on party history has been an enormous achievement if you view,、uh, view it from the position of the party, and they. Probably don't want to endanger this kind of consensus that has been sort of achieved within the party. And what about ordinary people, especially those who grew up during the Cultural Revolution? We're talking about a generation whose lives have been profoundly shaped by those events. Are they willing to re-examine those years? Oh, that pretty much depends on in what kind of position they、uh, used to be during the Cultural Revolution. So there are quite a few, and I'm not only talking about intellectuals here, but ordinary people who have been interviewed, for example, by our project we're working on the legacy of, of the Maoist era, who are very much willing to talk about their grievances. That is something that many people are willing to talk about. It's much more difficult to talk about people who actually take on responsibility for having committed crimes during the Cultural Revolution. 
Because I read a comment uh, very recently by a book publisher, Bao Pu, raised in Beijing, um, who now lives in Hong Kong. He said, you can't blame everything on Mao. He was responsible. He was the mastermind. But in order to reach that level of destruction that we saw during the Cultural Revolution, an entire generation has to reflect. Well, we have first examples of books of former Red Guards or others who sort of start reflecting on that. But generally speaking, it's not a general phenomenon. So it's individual cases that are being reflected. But, well, if it doesn't start now, there's not that much time left. So it would be crucial uh, to start that. But under the current situation, I would not expect this to happen in the near future. Which is sort of surprising, isn't it? Because if you look at Xi Jinping and his father, both victims of the Cultural Revolution, you might expect that people who suffered during those years might be a bit more inclined to openly discuss the legacy of those years. Well, definitely. I mean, uh, Xi Jinping is no longer with us, but at least uh, Xi Jinping, who grew up during the Cultural Revolution, who didn't meet his father for a very long period, he didn't even recognize him uh, when they first met, so in terms of his individual fate, one could think that he might be willing to discuss these things, but at least as far as he's publicly on record, he doesn't view the Cultural Revolution solely as suffering as far as his personal memory is concerned, but as a period uh, that he describes as a grinding stone where true leaders are born. And uh, so therefore, I think it is something where he sees, or at least where he put, portrays himself as the personal fate is not as important as the general well, fate of China or the keeping the legacy of the party intact. Quite a surprising attitude, um, at least sort of from a Western perspective. But overall, what do you see as the lasting legacy of the Cultural Revolution? What sort of imprint has it left on Chinese society? Well, there are different types of legacies, but uh, one important legacy clearly is distrust within a social community, but also towards all kinds of ideologies. They are very subtle continuities, especially with regard to language, with uh, framing enemies, with believing all kinds of rumors. On this level, I would say these legacies have never been adequately addressed uh, in the past. The other more obvious legacies that we see currently, like the re-emergence of the leader cult, are probably more startling, given that previously the party line was pretty clear that individuals shouldn't be placed above the party. And uh, these are legacies that have only started re-emerging in the past three years. This is Merrick's Experts. With me is Professor Daniel Lise of Freiburg University. We are discussing the legacy of the Cultural Revolution 50 years on. Under Xi, we have seen a very wide-ranging corruption crackdown that has all the hallmarks of a political campaign. We see the reintroduction of ideology on almost every level, politically, culturally, in the universities and schools. Do you see some parallels with the Cultural Revolution? If I see parallels, I would mainly refer to the climate that is in the process of being formed. So the necessity to claim loyalty to a certain person, to a certain individual. But on the other hand, I also see many differences that, for example, relate to the fact how is corruption being dealt with? Is it dealt with through a public uprising, uh, sort of mobilizing the populace against the party? No, that's not ha happening pretty clearly. And therefore, I would be cautious to draw parallels too closely between those two periods. This also relates to the other big aspect, the, the role of the personality cult, you don't see the frenzy and the belief in the cult that you had in the 1960s when also mass media was new. Currently, populace, while you see quite a few of those 
cult songs or things reappearing has a different quality from the Cultural Revolution era. But there are people who do draw comparisons between Mao and Xi Jinping. Um, it's often said that she is the most powerful man since Mao. Does it actually help to understand what's going on in China today? Well, I wouldn't claim that Xi Jinping is more powerful than, let's say, Deng Xiaoping. But uh, Xi Jinping at least is the first who actively has a cult uh, that is cultivated around his individual persona. This is something that Deng Xiaoping, for example, had to a much lesser extent as great architect of China's reforms. Where I do see parallels is the way that Xi Jinping sort of tries to act as a leader, being above factionalism in most cases, trying to use very open uh, language or verbiage, trying to use classical quotations, and thus trying to create a space where different people have to react on his utterances, but they are the ones who commit the mistakes. He's the one who then decides you're correct or not. Do you think that uh, she's thinking, or thinking in that particular way that you just described, that it has been shaped by the Cultural Revolution because this idea that you are either the enemy or you are the friend, it's, everything is either red or it's black. I mean, that was very much um, present during the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, there are quite a few historians who would claim that this is actually the key of Mao Zedong thought. So the first officially published Mao text starts with this question, who are our friends, who are our enemies? And this is clearly something that has an impact on the whole generation. Some left it behind, uh, others haven't. And definitely there are sort of parallels to be drawn, but it's hard to say in how much this is actually the result of the particular upbringing of this individual, because he's been also susceptible to all kinds of other influences. So it might also be uh, political choices to rely on these methods. So this kinds of uh, creating an external enemy to sort of stabilize the people as such is, is a method that we don't see with Mao only. It's, it's a very frequently employed political method in all kinds of regimes. If you look at Xi Jinping and uh, the way he is governing China, you, you have talked about this sort of political ideology that is much more prominent. How does that actually manifest itself either in the society or even in your work, working with academics and researchers in China? So in the realm of ideology, Xi Jinping clearly has put an emphasis on creating a new, I wouldn't necessarily call it a system of belief yet, but uh, definitely a set of core values that somehow creates unity also in the superstructure among party cadres and possibly also within the populace, because he does obviously no longer believe that providing economic goods and economic achievements will guarantee party rule in the next decades. So therefore, ideological work filters down in all kinds of activities that, for example, university professors, but also students have to engage in. I mean, that, that was happening previously as well. You had to attend Mao Zedong thought or Deng Xiaoping theory classes, but it's taken on a different quality. And therefore, I see a change in the political climate and the necessity to position yourself vis-a-vis -vis these kinds of statements. So you have to take a stand. And that is slightly different from previous times where you could basically sleep through those kinds of lectures. But that also means that debates, maybe also within academia, are less open than previously? Definitely. You have to have very good friends in order to still discuss events as open as you could that, let's say, 10 years ago. And uh, in my daily research, I noticed that, for example, when trying to engage in collaborative work with Chinese scholars who very much think about the possible consequences they could be uh, held accountable for, or, for example, when we are visiting archives, we have many archivists who simply decline to show us even 
the catalogs anymore because uh, they simply beg us tell us, well, we don't want to go to jail. Could you please change your topic? And these kinds of things didn't happen, let's say, five years ago. In that context, finally, how do you evaluate China's current tendency or impulse to insulate itself more from the outside world, the law on uh, foreign NGOs that was recently passed, um, the warnings that Western ideas could pollute Chinese society, the posters recently warning female government workers about the dangers of dating foreigners? Well, I think that's been an ebb and flow ever since uh, the reform and opening period. So you had similar warnings in the early 80s as well, but they weren't um, taken as seriously probably by everyone as they are they are now. So people are more cautious now, I would say, than they used to be at the time then. I would argue that basically the, the tendency goes to shaping Chinese core values around which to rally the populace. It's not necessarily that sort of this kind of enemy terminology permeates uh, also public discourse to the same extent that it used to do in the Cultural Revolution. It's mainly directed at internal audiences and therefore... I don't see, well, the same rhetoric of class struggle and enemies um, everywhere and spies re-emerging to the same degree that used to happen in the Cultural Revolution. Still, a lot of people are worried about the way China is going. So uh, where do you see China in, let's say, five years from now? Well, it's hard to say because uh, historical contingency simply is something that you cannot account for, especially in a position as now with the upcoming of the 19th Party Congress and basically the whole party leadership being exchanged with the exception of Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang. So I do see a raising amount of struggles within the party and therefore volatility with regard to these questions of party internal conflicts. I would hope that the kind of atmosphere that, that we currently witness is not going to last for much longer than the beginning or uh, the end of the 19th Party Congress. But it's hard to say simply because things are so volatile currently. Daniel Leser, thanks for your insights and analysis. That was Professor Daniel Leser of Freiburg University on the legacy of the Cultural Revolution. I'm Ruth Kirchner. Thanks for listening and bye for now. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.